welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician and CMIO and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, I'm covering the news to know for the week of February 10th. First off, just want to give a shout out to those of you who passed your informatics boards. I know results just came out this week. Uh, got mine. I'm happy to say I passed. I'm thrilled. It's huge relief. And congratulations to those of you who have successfully done so. For those of you who are gearing up to take it for next year, I do encourage you to take the AMIA board review course. I found it really valuable and I, there's just not a ton of resources out there in terms of how to help pass this test, but that's my two cents. thought it was a worthwhile course. It's not cheap, though. All right. First article tonight, Becker's Hospital Review. This one comes from Andrea Park, Thursday, February 6th. The AMA, uh, physician use of digital health tools has surged since 2016. In replicating a survey originally issued to 1,300 physicians in 2016, the American Medical Association found significant increases in the adoption, awareness, and appreciation of digital health tools per the 2019 survey results. So they found that uh, physicians' adoption of these tools increased regardless of gender, specialty, or age. Those, those surveys cited improved efficiency and patient safety as the top factors motivating them to implement digital tools. So here's some of the areas where it grew. Uh, between 2016 and 2019, telehealth visits were at 14%, now up to 28% of respondents are using telehealth. And remote patient monitoring, which increased from 13% to 22%. So why do I think this article is important for CMIOs? Well, I think it's important to monitor the adoption of technology in general, it can help guide you as to what kind of resistance you're going to face if you are trying to launch one of these initiatives in your facility. If you're a believer in the diffusion of innovations theory by Everett Rogers, which is from the 1960s, you'll recall that once you get to around 15, 20% adoption phase, you should start to see this go mainstream and really accelerate. However, in this case, there are some regulatory and payment model issues that are probably hindering that adoption. And I don't think that model from the 1960s of technology adoption does not does account for some of the strangeness in healthcare. So I'm not convinced that we're going to suddenly launch into everyone doing telehealth visits. But I think if the if the payment models change, then yeah, it certainly could. Next article. This one comes out of Healthcare IT News by Benjamin Harris, February 7th. Providers must invest in consumer technologies or risk irrelevance. When it comes to healthcare, hospitals and health systems were once monolithic in consumers' minds. But dizzying advances in business and technology have put plenty of industries on notice that old assumptions are out the window and healthcare is no different. Without substantially investing in consumer experience technologies, providers are in danger of being usurped by these non-traditional entrants into the healthcare world, says this is Aaron Martin, the chief digital officer at Providence St. Joe's. And those 
non-traditional entrants are talking he's talking about is Apple and CVS, Aetna, Walgreens. Doesn't mention Walmart, but I'm sure that's also on the mind since they are entering as well. Martin goes on to be quoted here. We still make people make phone calls to schedule appointments. What other industry does that? Millennials are not going to fool around with an organization that is not digitally enabled. So Martin goes on and say there's, I think, three things that we need to do here. Number one, build a strong relationship with consumers by having one, branded content, two, integrated scheduling, and three, maintaining contact. So the first one alludes to building a large library of online content, which establishes a trusted ecosystem for patients to visit when they aren't turning to other resources, which could ultimately siphon away businesses. The next one here is making the scheduling process seamless. This is, most of us are going to do this through our portal, but there are plenty of third party tools that will do this as well. Martin says that while there are many telehealth and scheduling apps out there, having to switch between two different systems was a bad experience for the consumer. And I could see that if you don't have an integrated app that's going to seamlessly take you between, oh, I think I can do this by telehealth, or no, I want to be seen in person, and being able to do that all from the same place, most systems can't do that. But that's where we need to get to. And then finally, Hospitals need to create more opportunities for engagement. That means finding ways to stay in touch between episodes of care with patients. So as CMIOs, I want us all to go and approach our average, let's just say, employed physician and ask them, number one, would they contribute to this content systems uh, of the library? And I'm willing to bet that they would probably say, yes, doctors like to show off their knowledge. So I think we'd get pretty good adoption on that. Many of us already do this, get doctors to come up with the latest for a Facebook post or something for their system. Building out a full content library though, that's a full-time job for people to moderate and update it. You gotta keep that content fresh. And so to be honest, most people buy this. There's third parties that will provide it for you. And it's just a lot easier to do it. Now, is that branded? No. You want branded content? Well, you gotta go out there and, and build it. Next. Ask providers if they're going to agree to allow their schedules to be wide open online. What I'm talking about is any appointment type, whether that's new patient, established patient, a follow-up, a physical, a pre-op, annual wellness visit, a specialty visit, whatever. Ask them if they're willing to do that. You're going to get a resounding no. It's because doctors like control. There are some institutions that I see that are doing this. You look online, Memorial Hermann, I've noticed, you look at their website, you can see tons of appointments online. I think that's just the culture. They just said, docs, this is the way we're doing it, and that's the way it works there. And I think it's a great thing. Uh, ask providers if they want to stay engaged with their patients in between episodes of care. And I think they'll say, of course we do. That's fine. But am I going to be reimbursed for that? And for the most part right now, the answer to that is no. So as a CMIO myself here, I'm interested in what others are doing around getting more appointments available online because I'm getting ready to tackle this and I want to know if anyone else has. Does this fall to CMIOs or is this going to the CMO or the employed uh, president of a medical group? Who's, who's pushing this one uh, and what strategies were successful? So if anyone wants to come on the show and tell me how they did it, I am all ears. Next, 
Oh, this was an interesting article. It came out of Healthcare Dive, and it's an article about One Medical, and they're interviewing their CFO, One Medical CFO, on why primary care is ripe for disruption. Primary care chain One Medical became one of few health startups to go public late last week and has seen early success. The company is raising capital as it looks to expand its current markets and to add more locations, the chief, medical, chief financial officer told Healthcare Dive. He responded to critics who have raised questions about whether One Medical is truly breaking the mold, saying the focus on what patients want, including quick access and easy virtual care, can be a force for disruption in the primary care space. That sector, however, is becoming more crowded with the likes of competitors Iora Health, Forward, Medcore, and others. So listen to how they're doing here. One Medical's IPO started at $14 a share, and that was on January 31st, so relatively recently. On Thursday, it hit $25 a share. It launched in 2007 and now runs 70 primary care clinics across nine U.S. markets. It uses a membership model touting a tech-savvy experience, and also contracts with businesses such as Google, which represents 10% of One Medical's revenue, and that's to provide care for its employees. So the CFO is talking here, answering the question about why is One Medical focused on primary care in particular? Frankly, because it's right for disruption, and no one else does it. When you think about it, if you need a primary care provider, takes you 29 days on average to actually get an appointment at a family physician. And once you get into that appointment, you're going to be sitting in a somewhat dingy waiting room for a while. They're going to be filling out a clipboard with information that, frankly, they've had since the first time you were at the provider's office. So does that sound familiar to any of you, any of your clinics like that? Take note, because people are trying to disrupt you if that's what you've got that you're offering. Oh, what else do they offer here? As part of our membership, you get 24-7 virtual care that's unlimited. And if you want to chat with us, if you want to have a video chat, if you want to send us text messages, if you want to email or call us, that's all part of the membership, and we integrate it seamlessly with our technology in the back end. Employers like us because we take 8% of the costs out. We also, through the fact that we've built our own technology, take 41% of the electronic health records tasks off the shoulders of our providers. That makes them so much more productive. That is sort of the CFO in me speaking. But at the same time, it really increases their quality of life and satisfaction in their roles, says the CFO. Uh, let's see. In the traditional system, the provider's being paid on a fee-for-service basis, so what do you think they're going to do? They're going to try to maximize their income. They're going to see as many patients as possible. We have a membership model, so we want to get to know you, who you are as a member, figure out what your health goals are, and then longitudinally follow you and help you become your best self. At the same time, we've actually changed the incentive system for the provider and said, no, you're not being paid on a fee-for-service basis. You're on a straight salary basis, and we want you to spend more time with our members. This next question they asked, I thought was interesting, which is, when you are considering partnering with a health system, what do you assess? Here's one of the answers. A big part of why we partner with our hospital systems is that we're hearing from our members is that they want to get access to specialists if and when they need specialist care. So having that openness on behalf of that partner to say, yes, I'm going to interface with you and the technology. Yes, I'm going to exchange data with you. Yes, I'm going to maybe even let you talk directly to my system. That willingness and openness is very, very important to us 
because otherwise we can't deliver on what our members and our enterprise customers need us to do. So why do I mention this? Because this is bread and butter primary care that they're offering. They've changed the payment model and that's what's driving the behavior of the providers to deliver this service. Sure, telehealth visits make sense. You don't want the patients coming into your office if you're basically in a subscription model. You'd like them to stay healthy and stay out. I'm not sure if this is the patient themselves that's paying for the subscription fee or if it's coming from employers. That would be basically a concierge model if it's coming from the patients themselves. And I suspect in some markets that is what it is. So it makes me wonder, is this really applicable to all? Is this just going to be a niche play? Uh, there are other concierge type programs out there. MDVIP is one of the larger ones on the market. And again, it's a niche play. There's some in every market, but we're not going to be able to care for millions and millions of people in this kind of model. So I wonder how disruptive this is going to be, although I have to confess I don't completely know the one medical model and who is paying for that. Now, if they're reducing costs to employers, then employers may very well get involved in paying for it. I suspect then you're just kind of shifting some costs around. But anyway, it's interesting to see how this disruption is taking place, and you should certainly take note of it. I know a lot of us have very dingy offices that have long wait times, have long waits to get in, are very unfriendly in terms of having to fill out forms constantly. Uh, even if you're using a portal and you've got some patients who I've heard use a portal, and then even though the data's in there, they still get asked again the next time they go to the office because the staff and the providers don't know how to access the data that those collected through the portal. So we still have work to do in healthcare, just overall, all of us. All right, last article. This is about Cerner. Cerner teases merger and acquisitions, divestitures, and touts backing for interoperability rules. This comes out of Healthcare Dive as well. Rebecca Pfeiffer wrote this on February 4th. So this was, they were reporting their fourth quarter results, which uh, they make a ton of money, uh, 1.4 billion, which was in line with forecasts. Anyway, it's a lot of money. Anyway, the Kansas City, Missouri-based EHR vendor plans to embark on some merger and acquisition activities and digest, divest flagging businesses in 2020 as it continues to turn away from its EHR legacy business and more towards software as a service. And this was coming from the top executives on an aftermarket call with investors. On the call, CEO Brent Schaefer reiterated Cerner's support for two health and human services rules promoting free data sharing between health IT systems due to be finalized any day now. Some EHR vendors, notably Epic, have slammed the proposals over data privacy and implementation concerns. So as CMIOs, I want you to key in on the differences that's occurring here. There's going to be some winners and losers in this market as the interoperability rule rolls out. Rolls out. Epic is fighting it. They are touting the patient privacy, but the truth is they want to control the data. And Cerner, on the other hand, is switching their model. They have seen the writing on the wall. They kind of get to this picture of we are going to be the platform that holds data and third parties are going to come interface in and then pull that out and the the interface the patient facing or the provider facing part may not be 
Cerner's interface anymore. It could be a third-party app that's extremely successful. Fantastic. And they're pivoting on that, trying to find out how are they going to make money in a new app market where they are essentially the app store, similar to, I guess, what Apple is today. Let's give you another paragraph here. Cerner started on a new operating model last year, pivoting from EHR to a platform organization focused on finding software tailored to individual client needs. This was coming from the CEO, and this was mentioned at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in San Francisco earlier this year. And the EHR vendor is planning to continue the strategy primarily by investing heavily in client experience and advanced technology internally and through partnerships like its R&D and cloud relationship with Amazon, which I think will give them the ability to do a lot of the artificial intelligence things that are cutting edge in the marketplace. So CMIOs, I think you do need to be aware. I think Epic has a huge share of the market right now. Will that persist? It takes probably decades to see any significant switching because the ability to switch EHRs is not easy as any of you who know if you've ever tried to flip from one system to another. There are high switching costs. So if your system is an Epic system today, it's unlikely you're gonna go and jump to Cerner. But if this interoperability piece comes through, those differences will start to blend because you may just choose third-party apps that give you the tools and the interface that is more friendly or attractive to your end users. If someone else comes up with the best oncology module that is better than what Epic has or what Cerner has and really can do staging for you without the doctor having to do 20,000 clicks to stage a cancer, that would have huge adoption. That's the kind of app that will come from this interoperability piece. Once those third-party tools can pull data out and then write data back in, it will dramatically change the experience of the EMR. And so let's wrap it up there. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast.gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.